Welcome to a podcast series from the Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences Faculty at Queen's University Belfast, examining the debate around constitutional futures. My name's Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's, and in this episode, I'm delighted to be in conversation with Emma D'Souza, writer, commentator, activist, and chair of the All-Island Women's Forum. Uh, the aim today is essentially reflecting on a broader theme to reflect on the current state of the constitutional conversation, where it's currently at uh, and where it might be going next. Just want to thank you to start with, Emma, for agreeing to participate in this podcast today. You're very, very welcome indeed. Delighted to be talking to you today. So in terms of the, the questions, I know that to our audience that you're very, very well known to our listeners as leading rights and equality activist here. But I wondered if you could say something just briefly by way of introduction about your own work, uh, your activism, and it, how it relates to the discussion today around constitutional futures. Well, I suppose I would be best known for reaffirming the identity and citizenship provisions of the Good Friday Agreement through what was a very long, drawn-out court challenge against the British Home Office over the right to be accepted as Irish under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement and to have my spouse, Jake, stay with me in Northern Ireland um, as the spouse of an Irish citizen. So I suppose that uh, was the, the big piece of my work. It went on for five years and during that time, the case and the campaign around that raised a lot of, um, I suppose, conversations and considerations around identity and citizenship in this place, how it relates to the Good Friday Agreement and the implication, uh, implementation of these rights into domestic UK law. And then from there, after the case ended, which uh, ended with changes to domestic UK immigration law, uh, which treated all the people of Northern Ireland as EU citizens for immigration purposes. Uh, since then, I've then been doing, I suppose, a bit of writing uh, after that, uh, doing a lot of commentary around politics in this place, around the Good Friday Agreement. And in my work uh, in human rights and equality, um, I'm now chairing the All Islet Women's Forum, which is really trying to create a space to build north-south understanding, intercommunity links, and really just trying to uh, have a positive impact on civic society. Thank you, Emma. And uh, a lot of your activism, your writing work, very, very well-known contributor to the discussion. Um, just thinking about the topic today of constitutional futures, you'll have noted, and I think many of the listeners will have noted, there's been a real intensification of interest in this topic. In fact, rarely a week goes by without some new initiative or comment or intervention. I just wanted to get us started today. Why do you think this is happening? Well, you're right to say that there's barely a week goes by now where there isn't a new uh, initiative or project uh, or piece around the constitutional question. It really has become quite mainstreamed. You know, we've seen it even mainstreamed in terms of uh, in mainstream media. And I think that we're moving in this direction and these conversations are intensifying because the terms have changed in terms of Brexit. Um, I think that the Brexit vote, which saw the people of Northern Ireland vote to remain, and yet despite that vote, uh, Northern Ireland is caught up in a very damaging situation with Brexit and being taken out of the EU, I suppose, against the wishes of the majority in Northern Ireland. So I think it changed people's minds in terms of, well, what other options might be there? And the idea of a United Ireland, you know, might have been for a time 
something that people romanticized, that might have been something that nationalists would like to have seen realized. But it's a broader conversation now in terms of economics, in terms of returning to the EU, in terms of those benefits, and that has brought in a much broader group uh, in society to talk about it. Um, in terms of the the framing of the process, you'll know when you've been a leading defender really of the Good Friday Agreement and you've done a lot of work in trying to raise awareness and educate people on its role. There's a lot of references to the agreement, the structuring and framing the process. But in some of your recent work also, you've highlighted, you know, the failure of implementation across a range of areas and you have personal experience, which you've outlined in relation to that. But I suppose in relation to this specific debate, what do you think the references to the Good Friday Agreement in terms of the constitutional future discussion actually mean? And, and what do you think the practical implications are for the debate here? Well, we, we know that there is within the Good Friday Agreement uh, constructive ambiguity and that that was necessary, I suppose, in terms of trying to get agreement and get the deal across the line. But when it comes to the constitutional question, uh, there is a lot there that can be picked up on that does give us some uh, signposts in terms of where we go from here. So if you look at the language of the Good Friday Agreement, it does state uh, that the um, sovereign government that has jurisdiction at the time must have rigorous impartiality and that has to be uh, in in the way of people being able to exercise their right to self-determination. So if you read from that text, uh, it would say to you then that the British government is to remain neutral in any border poll. And on the other side of that, we have, of course, Article 3 of the Irish Constitution, which amended the claim um, of the Irish state on Northern Ireland, but included an aspiration to unite the Irish so it, in that way, you can see that there is a need for the British government to remain neutral. However, the Irish government is not bound by that same restriction and actually does have a constitutional imperative to work actively to unify the island. Last question there, Emma. Since there's a very live debate at the moment around that obligation, around rigorous impartiality and the position of the Labour Party and the Conservative Party, what, what, what's your own view and thinking on that? Yeah, we have seen plenty of commentary on that over uh, the last 24 hours. My word, uh, the Shadow Secretary of State, uh, Louise Hay, didn't really know what she's getting herself in for there. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, the concept of neutrality around a border poll came from 1990 from the former Secretary um, of State for Northern Ireland. Um, it was something that... Uh, was a real turning point uh, in the peace process. It made it into the Good Friday Agreement that neutrality is very important. Um, and this debate that's happening at the moment that questions uh, the UK's position in a border poll is I think just another example of how two decades on we are seeing a lot of distortion around what the Good Friday Agreement actually says and um, a lot of different interpretations have opened up over that time and a lack of clarity, a lack of implementation, a lack of legislation allows there to be space uh, for these kinds of misinterpretations over what the text actually says. Okay, so in terms of the ongoing discussion at the moment, there's a lot of focus on preparation and planning. And in fact, the sort of that phraseology, if you like, is beginning to, do, you know, the, the, the conversation. But in terms of your own work in civic society, what role do you think civic society should play or civil society should play in that preparatory work for uh, the referendums anticipating the agreement? And I suppose, just to push that question on a bit, do you sense a bit of a nervousness in civil society 
in community and voluntary sector organizations about entering this contested space? Well, I think that uh, really civic society should be leading the conversation on constitutional change because placing it into the hands of political parties can create more segregation and division. And really, the power of civic society is that it does bring together uh, broader groups of people and creates a space uh, for more dialogue and more open dialogue to happen without preconceived notions on what that means. So I think civic society is a really important component in this. Um, but a big issue for that, of course, is a lack of resources for civic society um you know as someone who works in an NGO, uh, all of these organizations are always struggling to get funding um, to sustain their work as it is, never mind moving into trying to bring on new projects. So that's a constant issue that they're faced with. And I think there was nervousness around entering the conversation, but I think that's ebbing away a little bit now. We do see more organizations getting involved, taking a position, more projects opening up. So I think that nervousness is starting to move now. And that is interesting in itself, isn't it, that, that more people are playing a part in this discussion and the sort of preparatory phase. I suppose it leads on to the next question that there have been calls, for example, for a citizens' assembly. And I noticed, you know, in, in your writing, you've talked about perhaps more than one citizens' assembly to deal with all the issues. There have been references to a minister for reunification, a joint Oireachtas committee, among many other things. Do you think these would be useful? And is there anything you think that's being missed at the moment in terms of that sort of preparatory work? Well, I think that uh, they would be useful. Any sort of space that encourages dialogue is beneficial. Um, and my greatest concern, I suppose, in terms of preparation is that there isn't a lot of time. There's, I suppose, this assumption that there will be time uh, in advance of any border poll for a lot of the work that would need to be done. But in reality, there should not just be one citizens assembly tasked with, you know, going through all the various issues uh, that would come up in the advance of a border poll, but really a number of separate citizens assemblies addressing all the complex issues, all island healthcare, uh, all island education. I mean, education itself is a huge body of work and trying to figure out the education system north and south and uh, bringing those two together, merging them is a substantial body of work, uh, looking at national identities and flags and symbols. A citizens assembly for each of these areas would not just be beneficial in terms of, uh, you know, encouraging dialogue and finding some sort of consensus on what the public actually want, but they would naturally build more understanding, more uh, north-south links and sort of break down the barriers that we do see north and south that persist. So there's a, a great benefit to having these spaces, which is why the reluctance to put them together is at times so baffling because coming from the perspective of someone who chairs an all-island structure, like these spaces are just so beneficial, so valuable to building relationships. And if you look at the process, I suppose, maybe if you looked at Scotland, it took them two years to prepare. I think in the case of Ireland, it would take a lot longer and we just don't know when that's going to happen. So I really think there needs to be much more preparation done. You, ra you raise a very important point there, Emma, and, and you've also written about this, this whole question of time frame. And the timing of this assumes there'll be an opportunity to do this methodical planning. But of course, we're very much in the hands of the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland and the British government and around all of that. So, as you say, we may be in this space sooner rather than later. So I suppose that does raise a question around advanced planning. There's there's quite an extended debate about how much 
gets done before the referendums and what's left to afterwards. And I wonder where, where you are in that debate, you know, how much should happen before the referendums take place? Well, I think there are some areas where there would have to be a substantial body of work done in advance. One would be healthcare. I mean, healthcare is going to be a significant deciding factor. Um, and I think another point to bring in is that there's a huge opportunity to be had there as well, and that the language of opportunity is really important in this debate because there's an opportunity to, to address systemic policy failures north and south. I think that in uh, Northern Ireland, we can be a bit caught up in romanticizing how great the NHS is. And whilst it is extraordinarily uh, you know, beneficial to have a free at the point of access health service, there are, of course, you know, extremely uh, long waiting lists and a lot of uh, issues with the NHS in Northern Ireland. In the south, equally, there are substantial issues when it comes to the healthcare service. So bringing together, say, a Citizens Assembly that can work out what people actually want to see from the health service um, and trying to put together a plan on what an all-island healthcare system would look like would be a really substantial and beneficial thing to do in advance of any border poll. And when I think about, um, oh sorry, uh, when I think about, um, you know, if we look at what happened with the Good Friday Agreement, I think that process where there was this 30-odd page document that was agreed in advance, that was circulated to every household so that every voter was informed so they could make the best decision possible is a process that we really should be aspiring to with something as significant as a vote on the constitutional future. And there are some things that would be better to be done afterwards. But, you know, for example, if you look at um, the national flag, now I support changing the national flag. I think that would be important but you might not be able to decide on the design until after a vote, but you could in advance say that this is something that's going to happen. Thank you very much, Emma. It's really you know, striking in the response there and in the contributions, how much emphasis there is on responsible advance planning and, and letting people know in some kind of document what it is they're, they're voting for in relation to this. I suppose following on from that, one interesting aspect of the debate, and it's, it's in some senses surprised me how quickly it's moved into this space, is that people are talking about uh, a new constitution for United Ireland and really quite significant constitutional change. I just wondered your thoughts on that. You know, will a, will a new United Ireland require a new constitution? Yes, and it's well overdue because the current constitution has uh, plenty of archaic, uh, you know, pieces in it that could be done with uh, being done away with. So there's an opportunity there as well. And I think that's why this process is for me personally so exciting is because it, uh, it gives citizens an opportunity to feed into and create a constitution of uh, of a new Ireland and you really don't get too many opportunities like that uh, so that's why I think it's a, a process that can be quite uh, quite exciting and also needs to have as much buy-in from the public as possible as much interaction from the public citizens need to be engaged on it um, and that uh, that will, it will create an environment where people will become uh, more excited and engaged around it obviously it'll be a it'll be a, a lengthy document but if you had to what if I had to press you to pick something in particular you'd like to see in a new constitution? What would it be? Well, I mean, I mean, my head is currently still in fixing the constitution as it is. Like, so for example, can we please vote for a president? That would be really great. Um, but I suppose in a new and uh, united Ireland, um, 
I would really like to see, I suppose, protections for the multiple identities and cultures that exist uh, on the island. We often think in very binary terms, and even in this conversation, it's still quite binary because we often speak about the need to protect identities such as a British identity, but there are many other identities and cultures that exist, and I would love to see a more inclusive um, constitution that, that really embraces a new concept of what it means to be Irish. Bill of Rights in there somewhere too, yeah, I think it would be useful. Wouldn't, uh, yeah, be all right, wouldn't it? <laughs> so just to, in terms of the current discussion, which we've highlighted there, the Irish government is using this, the framing of a shared island to describe much of the discussion at the moment. I just wonder what your views of the various shared island initiatives are. There's a shared island unit, and there's a number of other funding initiatives as well. Do you think that's a helpful framework for thinking about relationships on the island now and in the future? I think that the shared island unit and the, the funding is great. I mean, anything that is bringing people together uh, to have an open dialogue um, and that is putting money into cross-border projects is incredibly beneficial uh, to the whole island. So I think that that approach is, is really important. But I think um, there is, I suppose, a bit of a concern around the language that has been used around the Shared Island Initiative and the language being used by the current Taoiseach that has at times implied, I suppose, that um, you know, the principle of 50 plus one under the Good Friday Agreement is not the means to uh, reconciliation on this island to the point where we've actually had, uh, I think a few months ago, a number of TDs that had to come out and confirm, no, the Good Friday Agreement does say it's 50 plus one. Um, and I think the fact that, that that conversation had to happen indicates a worrying trend where we're moving away from the terms of the Good Friday Agreement um, and sort of putting up blockades uh, to this particular conversation. And you can't really stop the tide. Once people start wanting change, it's very difficult to stop that process. So I would rather see the government take a more embracive approach to the conversation than the kind of tepid approach, the very cautious approach that they've taken so far. And what, what would that look, you know, what would what could they do at the moment, do you think, that would that would look like that, that would be them moving away from the tepid approach you've mentioned? I mean, the easiest thing to do is this uh, All Island Citizens Assembly. I mean, it really is not difficult to do this um, and would actually be really beneficial even to their, their, their language around a shared island because it does actually really help break down barriers to put people in a room. You know, as the saying goes, if you build it, they will come. You know, so the, when they say that there's concern that there wouldn't be a buy-in or attendance from certain communities to an all-island citizens assembly, well, how about trying first and see who turns up because I think we would be quite surprised to see who might end up in that room. So try, try it and see. Hmm? <laughs> Absolutely. So, okay, in terms of, we're sort of looping back to something you mentioned earlier, but I think it's an important part of your work. You've expressed, would it be fair to say, a, a measure of frustration about the labelling and classifications and the way in which the North, Northern Ireland and its people tends to be portrayed both on the island and internationally as well. 
I just wondered, did you see, do you see that changing and, you know, what are the implications of that change or are we really stuck in this mold forever, do you think, Emma? I think uh, we have changed, but the portrayal of Northern Ireland has not changed. Uh, and it has been quite frustrating uh, to see the uh, perpetual depiction, I suppose, of a Northern Ireland at odds with the self. And I think that that depiction, um, you know, when there is, I suppose, a disturbance in Northern Ireland, it is amplified um, to a point where it gives this impression that, you know, Northern Ireland hasn't made substantial progress over the last two decades in terms of reconciliation and peace building. And it really gives this um, impression of the place that is not something that I recognize. And it's quite frustrating when you see that being displayed uh, in terms of in the Irish media, UK media, and even in the US. I mean, I saw a piece on CNN about uh, Northern Ireland and my word, it was, uh, you know, you think it was 1995 from the way it was being portrayed. So there is a significant um, issue in terms of the media and how it presents Northern Ireland. But there's also an issue in terms of how uh, political parties and structures and, and the government, I suppose, also uh, depicts Northern Ireland because we still often see the language being used of Northern Ireland consisting just of unionists and nationalists and not really a space that acknowledges the growing community who don't identify with either label. And I've always found that to be quite a frustrating process. I find that these labels are used as a way to continue to segregate people in Northern Ireland, to create division between communities. And they're, they're labels that are used against us. They don't benefit us uh, to have these labels. So it's really something that I do try to push back on. Thank you, Emma. I'm really now coming really to the end of the main questions here. And this is probably a totally unfair question, right? <laughs> because uh, who can guess what's going to happen in the future? But if you had to predict, if we were having this discussion in 2030, let's say, um, what do you think might have changed given what we know now? So if you had to make predictions for the decade ahead, and if you and I were having this conversation in uh, November 2030, um, what do you think might be different in November 2030 from now? Well, I, I am an optimist, so I dare say that I would uh, predict that we may well be having this conversation in a new and united Ireland. Um, I do think it is highly likely that we are heading uh, towards a referendum, uh, certainly within the next decade. Um, and I think that um, that's why these conversations do continue to grow. And it's why it's so important uh, to make, create spaces where people can come together, but also to go back to basics, you know, in terms of actually delivering on what was agreed in the Good Friday Agreement and uh, acknowledging uh, the aspiration that people had in 1998 when they said yes and uh, making real the concept of self-determination. And what do you see, Emma, as you know, your priorities in your work and activism and writing? What do you see as your priorities for the time ahead? Well, now I have quite a few hats on, so there'll be a few priorities there. I would, uh, in the in the interim, it would be really great to have a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland uh, 23 years on, 24 years nearly. 
uh, and we really are uh, seeing a process that uh, really holds back on rights and not only holds back on rights but rolls back on rights and it's a significant concern for any of us that um, aspire to protect human rights in this place that we have to um, struggle to really hold on to what has uh, been gained over the last two decades and now we have the um, concern around Brexit and how that might impact on citizens' rights as well. And then aside from that, a lot of my work, I suppose, and priorities over the coming years will be around the All Out at Women's Forum and continuing to encourage a space where women can come together in terms of increasing political participation. Uh, also, the campaign around extending presidential voting rights will be a key part of my work as well. Um, and then just furthering my work around trying to see the uh, Good Friday Agreement um, actually implemented. Um, and then, of course, uh, campaigning for uh, a United Ireland, because I do think that that is, uh, for me, the next chapter, an important next step in reconciliation on this island. And I think that really the process in the end will be quite cathartic um, and will be uh, something that uh, many people will find to be really, I suppose, the next stage of the peace process. Interesting point you make there, Emma. You connected the constitutional conversation with the wider process of reconciliation. I thought that was an interesting way of putting it. Do you want to say a bit more about that? So do you see that, you know, change conversation as part of the bigger agenda of reconciliation on the island? Well, I think that if you look at, say, um, you know, John Hume once described it as the true border in Ireland is in the hearts and minds of its people. Now, don't quote me, that might not be word for word, but uh, along those lines. And I think that through my work, I have recognized that there does continue to be a disconnect between citizens north and south. And that in Northern Ireland, there have been significant gains in terms of reconciliation, but there remains barriers to reconciliation across the island uh, between those in Northern Ireland and in the south. And I think that the process of uh, developing a plan and having conversations around constitutional change will create a space where people across the island who haven't maybe considered um, what that might mean for them uh, will be able to come into this conversation with generosity of spirit and will be able to open up their minds and hearts to uh, embracing the whole island and the Northern Irish traditions as well. So I do think when we think about reconciliation, we often talk about it in terms of Northern Ireland, but the reality is it's the whole island that needs to reconcile with its past uh, and that's going to be an important part of this process. Thank you very much. What a fantastic way to uh, conclude our podcast. I just want to thank you so much for sharing your insights as part of the series for your ongoing work and really to, to wish you well and all the very best in what you've outlined today for your ongoing work and your activism, Emma, and to thank you for it. So thank you very much for joining the podcast series today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. This is part of the Constitutional Futures podcast series produced by the Faculty of Arts, Humanities and Social Sciences at Queen's University Belfast. Please subscribe and rate this podcast. That will also help others find it. The podcast can be listened to on the Queen's University Belfast website and also on iTunes and Spotify.